Hello and welcome to episode 86 of What Most People Think. And just a bit of breaking news here. I'm going to form a breakaway podcast, okay? I just need to... I've got too many legacy fans. Uh, oh, no, actually, I've realized it's a shit idea. I'm sorry. Sorry for offending the fan base. And that was roughly the time scale on which the European Super League thing played out. Uh, I hope you've had a good week. My liver has taken a pound in from all these liberties i'm getting back i didn't realize it would be so damaging to my health to have these freedoms uh and also you know supporting the pub industry being a patron of my local uh breweries it, it might mean that i die younger it might mean that i die younger but at least pubs will be there for all the people that survive me and uh this week Backed by popular demand, it must be said, a few people are howling for Dominic Frisby to come back for his first co-host appearance. And as his third appearance, you are officially a co-host now, Dom. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Jeff. If I've been on the show three times, surely that qualifies me for Jeff, uh, the the Jeff Norcott Super League status, along yeah, with Tottenham yeah. and Arsenal. No, no, you have to have last been on it in 1961, if we apply a Tottenham. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> How have you uh, have you been enjoying your 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 friends back? Have you have you been out and sort of taken advantage and been to pubs and pub gardens? Well, I haven't. I haven't. We, we went on holiday to Hastings last week, um, and so we had a nice week on the south coast, me and the kids. Um, but I think we would have gone anyway, if that makes sense. As long as the Airbnb people didn't stop us, yeah. and I sort of live my life semi in as a hermit anyway. So I, I think. Um, I, I'm one of these guys who sort of does what he was going to do anyway under the radar. Lockdown's kind of nothing new because I never left the house anyway. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think there's two things here that we should point out for new fans to the show and for people that are hearing Dom on the show for the first time. Dom is one of the only people you'll meet who is an actual libertarian, and I mean that rather than basically a, a, a Tory who wants to be seen as groovy. He he actually lives this. But But ironically, on the other hand, Stays in his house a lot, which is an interesting... <laughs> yeah, but through my own choice, not because yeah. the government told me to. I want to be at liberty to do absolutely fuck all. Uh, well, that's good to hear, man. And um, yeah, good that you could do it legally, but I think we were getting... A, I, were, I think we were getting to a point where if the government didn't make it legal, people were going to start making their own decisions, I think. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think everyone's so bored of the lockdown now. It, it's it's really just a matter of ticking the boxes. I mean, I noticed, for example, we booked this place on... Uh, technically, you, you were only allowed to rent a house out from April the 12th, uh, which was the Monday, which is like a really stupid day to do it because the changeover day for holidays is always the Saturday yeah. um, in, in the UK. So they should have done it from the... set. Well, obviously, they wouldn't think it's something like that practical, but the... But we, I booked the house from the Saturday and the Airbnb people, you know, D-N-G-A-S, did not give a shit. And I booked an Airbnb last summer down in Cornwall. And I think technically the lockdown hadn't ended at the point that we booked it, but but people had already stopped yes. obeying the law for the most part. And again, the host just, they didn't even mention it. So my sort of inference from that is that you, you, people have long since stopped caring and as long as you you know are sensible and not stupid then you know a bit like the swedish approach then you're fine to just go about and do as you please 
It's been an interesting time in life, isn't it? I think that there was one, there's been two times in my life when men of our vintage were fascinated by what was happening in Sweden. <laughs> I must say the second time around is way less fun. Yeah, and that early fascination has never left me. <laughs> what happened? Sweden was just like, it was just like rule. It was the sexiest country on earth, wasn't it? All through the yeah. 70s and early 80s. I mean, it's still, I don't know if it's the same for young fellas now, but... Like even the word, you just think of sexiness. I mean, IKEA did their best to undermine that by making, again, men of our age trudge around looking at fucking flat pack. But it still has I a think bit of magic. Swedish Swedish massage once meant one thing. Yeah. And I think what a Swedish massage meant is now probably, if I said a Thai massage, I think that's where your mind would go. And now a Swedish massage is sort of very wholesome and... and um, well, it's because the EU have got involved, haven't they? Yeah, it must be what it is. They're, must be what it is. They've probably taken care of to, to work as well. So they were probably wearing face shields a long time ago. Anyway, <laughs> with, <laughs> what what an image to start the show with. Yeah. We're going to have a catch up on the Cuscout, uh, sort of picking up on that theme of sort of filth, basically. From the last episode, there were 23 fuckings. This is from me. Six shits, uh, eight fucks, two fucked. So past tense, fuck. So that's have points. you it, have you got a bot that's counting this, or have you got an order? No, no. Uh, the esteemed patron David Domain, and he will. I've got I've got your average coming up in a sec, but I'll just deal with Matt from the last episode. Matt making is my friend Matt Marnie. A lot of great feedback about his appearance to do with meditation and mental health. Um, he did fourteen swears, which I knew, being a fellow South Londoner, um, that that was always going to be. The case, Dom. How do you think? I've got to say, as a as someone who's into meditation and mental health, swearing is not what you expect. But isn't that getting all like purging your demons and your? Oh, absolutely. But it's not. It's not conventional. It's not conventional mental health. Couldn't that be like you know you get that? Oh, want to go to meditation? Oh, fucking hell! That could be your instead. (laughs) Instead of the arm, you just go. There is an almost yeah. religious quality to that word. Dom, you've been on twice. Where yeah. do you think your total swears are coming in in terms of... We have a leaderboard now, by the way. Well, I... Because gonna, I have a reasonably educated accent, I think people think that I don't actually swear that much. But in fact, okay. I do swear a lot. However, I think when I was on the podcast, we were talking mostly about money and economics and me yeah. wearing that hat so that I might not have sworn that much. So I'm going to say seven fucks an hour. Oh, that is, I mean, the thing is, your science in getting to that answer was bang on and your eventual estimation was close. You did four across two episodes. That's two an episode, which puts you, uh, yeah, yeah, two an hour. So that puts you 12th mid table. So it's interesting. In your third appearance here, I guess you could either view the the opposite ends of the table as being good or, or a bad thing. You might think being top is a bad thing and being bottom is a good thing. So from here, you either up it significantly or you try and stay away well uh, yeah I, I see myself very much as the wolverhampton wanderers of swearers on the jeff po- on the jeff norcott podcast but i i think i deep down subscribe to the idea that swearing is a substitute for wit i know yeah. for example 
example, if I'm doing new material, my swear count goes up a lot because you stick a yeah. fuck in in order to try and give the whatever the punchline more impact. By the way, if I'm saying fucked when I'm discussing the word fucked in an abstract sense, does that count? No, 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 my that, no swear that count? is uh, theory. That is that counts as, as theory okay, good, good, good. And, and discourse. Um, that is not within, within the normal patterns of speech. So it's only when used as invective. It is. And I think that um, there's another sort of means by which swear words can be used is, is as punctuation. So let's look. For, <laughs> we have some new patrons. Uh, we've got Matthew Tinnerly, who just sounds like, uh, I don't know any positions in rugby, but he sounds a bit rugby, doesn't he, Matthew Tinnerly? He does, doesn't he? I yeah. think just because it sounds like Tyndall. Tinnerly is someone you want on the flanks of your scrum, I would say. Yeah, quick, light on his toes. In, you quick know, and doesn't feel pain. Does, <laughs> that's good for any rugby player. Um, ben Nuttall, which I think sounds like a sort of environmentalist. Right uh, forward, if you ask me. More of a forward. All right, well, Richard, we'll just keep it. If you know your rugby, then Richard Maurice. Um, French. <laughs> but also called R- Richard Maurice, a French fullback with a with, with a real temper on him, with a short fuse. Slippery, but slippery, but wobbles when he has to do a big challenge. Yeah, but <laughs> but we'll, we'll sucker punch somebody in the scrum. Yeah, Honour um, Irene maybe um, maybe also plays for the French team. Uh, Kate Watkiss, <laughs> see how we both like to totally defer England from- captain. But see how we both deferred from taking the piss out of uh, of a name that wasn't obviously Anglo-Saxon. I just I just admire the ambition of Honor Irene's parents calling yeah. like I would not call my son Honor, but I presume that's what Honor means. Oh, well, it's O N U R. Oh I like no! About oh, this okay, is- so it doesn't mean Honor. Sorry, I thought it was like oh, I thought that was just your shit pronunciation, and it was H O N E U R. You were trying. I mean, to like say. if I was going to do shit pronunciation, it would go the other way. I wouldn't. I wouldn't fluff it up. <laughs> I'd go Honor. Okay. Kate Watkiss, yeah, the England's uh, captain. Graham Johnson, probably uh, more of an eighties rugby player, and Eamon Hale. Remember him, the Irish prop. Yeah, very much so. Dirty Honor. player. What a player. Turned out to have uh, loyalist links. Not good. Really dark. Episode. Yeah, and, and bit some guy's ear in the scrum. <laughs> For sectarian reasons. What a brilliant yeah. <laughs> sort of Irish stereotype to deploy shamelessly at that point. Um, coming up on the show, obviously, we're going to be talking about the European Super League. And coming off the back of that, we will be then looking at comedy as a, as, as a sort of capitalist business enterprise, how it operates through that lens. And, and one thing Dom uh, brings to the show is he knows money, right? He knows how business works. He knows how fucking Bitcoin works. He knows all that stuff, all right? So we're going to... Good about talking about it, Jeff. Not good at making it. That, <laughs> like, like a barber with shit hair. Um, <laughs> but before we crack on, uh, as we have a co-host guest here, Dom, you get to do the thank you and a fuck you this week. Oh, right. Okay. So this is, do you want to start with the thank you? Something you're grateful for within this last week? Um, I was supposed to have prepared this, wasn't I? You were. I mean, if you don't have any. I was. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful for the strides forward that Royal <laughs> Mail have made. Uh, and this was apparent to me this week when uh, I was getting, I have to get a delivery delivered this morning. And they emailed me to say, your delivery is coming between 8 a.m. and 12 a.m. this morning and if you are not in is there a safe place you would like us to put it in or would you like us to re-deliver tomorrow and this is in my experience of Royal Mail 
uh, unprecedented. And it shows the positive market forces that the likes of Amazon and Hermes and all these other couriers mm. have had and forced Royal Mail to up their game. But it's great to see Royal well, Mail finally striding into the 20th century, 21st century. That's a great thank you. I think in a way, is it, is it a bit like the trains where privatisation has made it better? I mean, it costs four times more, but it is better. Well, it, the trains are probably or were probably better. It's years since I've been on one, but the um, I, I'm not a big believer in 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 giving um, licenses. Uh, basically, a state monopoly was handed to a private company with the trains. Yeah, you know, it's not like anyone else can just come along and build a, another rail line next to the Great Northeastern Line as a challenger and offer the thing. You know, nobody can come. There's only one railway line, and one company owns that railway line yeah. and basically can mine it for everything it's got. And there's that's no, there's I, no easy rail, is there? No, there's exact. We need Ryan exactly. Rail. We need. <laughs> that's exactly what we need: is Ryan Rail, Easy Rail. And, um, <laughs> oh, fucking hell. I mean, like, even as I've said that, I've you know, when you like you, you delve into Pandora's box and you don't like yeah. what you saw, I can both see that. Would, that. would you get it? You you want you want British air rail for like the posh people, and, yeah. and then you want Ryanair for, for the chavs. And there are times when you'd get one, and you there are times when you get the other, and it would work beautifully. So I'm not a fan of that, but I do accept that I do recollect trains in the 1970s or rather people moaning about trains in the 1970s. And even though they were cheaper, I think they were largely shit. So, so, so I'm not defending that type of privatization, but with something like Royal Mail, when loads of other people came along and just did it better, it was almost like embarrassing for Royal Mail. They just have to up their game just, yeah. to, just to keep up. So... I'm in favour of that type of privatisation and competition. And in fact, I'd like to see the same thing. It's slowly starting to happen with the NHS, where these sort of, like there's these Polish doctors who go around looking after Polish people who don't trust the NHS. And it's like 25 quid to go to the doctors. And it's like, you know, the appointment is run on time and you don't get called a complete cunt by the woman on reception. Um, (laughs) I I quite like these kind of challenger things. So, you know, the more... It basically embarrasses um, state-run well, enterprises into behaving better. I mean, not a state-run enterprise, but you certainly saw... Royal the... Mail. It did used to be. Oh, no, no, sorry. I was thinking of uh, taxi drivers. So with black okay. cab drivers, when Uber sort of came along, there was a lot of things that Uber didn't do as well as black cab drivers. But it certainly meant that black cab drivers didn't look at you with murderous reproach when you wanted to pay by card. It forced them... Yeah, it, was, it forced them to start using credit cards. <laughs> And 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 it brought black cap dri- black taxi drivers into the tax uh, into the tax paying uh, section of society, which yeah. I and I I pity them. I I I'm uh, I, I'm sorry for them. For well, that. God bless them. They turned out in their hundreds to honour uh, Prince Philip. Yeah. I I, why did they nice like time. him so much? Is that just a simple patriotic thing? Or yeah, yeah, I think it's a patriotic thing. I, I don't know. I mean, it just, it just appealed to the flag shagger in me. I got a bit of mosh, as the kids would say when I saw that. Don't know why. Yeah. Just like I did, I did as well. And the fuck you? Oh, yeah, sorry. The fuck you is to... I'm going to give the fuck you to Rishi Sunak okay. because he is so fucking bland and he's such an opportunist. And they're all like, oh, Rishi Sunak, all diversity, blah, blah, blah. But he is totally a product of the... 
uh, lizard system, having gone to public school and then to Oxford and Cambridge to do PPE and then Goldman Sachs and la, la, la. And he's just another lizard in a different guise. And then when he came out with his, oh, look, we've got a digital currency. Oh, look, Bitcoin. Fuck you, Rishi Sunak and your Bitcoin. But, Don't but on the other hand, in shit coins. On the other hand, Dom, he does have excellent branding. You know, like, yeah, the, that's that's what I'm saying. He's, he's rebranded on his tweets. Come on. That's got to be worth something, isn't it? Has he got a blue tick? <laughs> the Well, we, we were going to discuss Bitcoin in the show. Maybe this is a good place to sure. do it. So, so why why would the UK government want its own cryptocurrency? Well, 90% of um, central banks around the world are looking at developing their own, what they're called central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Yeah. And you will have a wallet, like an account, with the central bank and the central bank will put money into your wallet, you know, your furlough money or whatever, and you will spend it. And it is the most evil development in the history of man. And it takes us straight into Orwell and Brave New World and all the rest of it, because it allows unprecedented government control of money and thus your behavior. So for example, they will do things like, you know, oh, you're Jeff Norcott. I've seen your accounts. You're doing very well at the moment. We're going to put you in the negative interest rate uh, tax bracket. So if you your money that you hold as cash, you have to pay interest to us on. Whereas, oh, that person over there, he's, he's really struggling. We're going to pay him a rate of interest. But it actually opens that so money will have do things it will have an expiry date on it you have to spend the money by this point things will be coded into the money that you can only use it for certain things and you can't use it into other things which allows huge government control i am convinced that in the same way we see censorship on social media and certain views held back we will see in the more nefarious regimes people with the wrong opinions have their spending curtailed and people with the right opinions people who get good social credit scores uh, get rewarded with more of this central bank digital currency so in a capitalist economy broadly speaking at least you are to a certain extent rewarded for your endeavor rewarded for the amount of hard work you put in and all the rest of it with a central bank digital currency it opens up the possibility i'm not saying it will happen but it opens up the possibility for people to be rewarded for having the right opinions that is i mean didn't expect it to go this dystopian this this early but <laughs> that like, is now I should be, I should be, because I'm a basic bitch. I should be terrified about what you've said about free speech and rewarding the right opinions. However, the thing that's knocking around in my mind, and I suspect with a lot of my listeners, is it having a best before date. I can't get over the image of milk in my fridge. Like I yeah. think, I think of the poor job that I do of managing perishables. I just threw away some watermelon earlier. I mean, who lets watermelon go off? Let money money have an expiry date. Yeah. Well, they they sort of already tried it in Japan and it didn't really work. But but let's say you know there's an economic crisis. Who? When do they happen? And yeah. uh, you know it's decided by so it it opens up the door to yet more central planning, in whatever form it takes. And you, let's say they decide that you know we need to boost the economy and we need to boost the economy by July the first. Well, they just put an expiry date on your money, and that that's programmable. 
But if they fucking combine that with a bank holiday weekend, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> they, and they might say, you know, Weatherspoons has got ring, wrong opinions. You can't spend that money at Weatherspoons. Okay, mate. Well, fan, fascinating stuff. Didn't expect it to go there. Thank you and the fuck you. That's the most mind-blowing thank you and fuck you we've ever had. Okay, right. Let's get on to talking about this week's big subject, starting with the ill-fated uh, European Super League. Okay, so the European Super League. Already, already one of the... F- those funny words in history of things that just didn't didn't work out, like like new coke, you know, like just just a shit idea. But let's have a, let's have a recap, in, just in case anybody hasn't kept up with this. We had uh, on Sunday night there was an announcement which included six English clubs, which was a slap in the face for Scotland, uh, included Tottenham, which was a slap in the face for fucking everybody. And straight away this seemed bogus, right? You know, no apparently no relegation or promotion initially, no Germans, no French. No Dutch clubs, no Belgians. You could probably live without the Belgians, let's be honest. I mean, the whole composition of it was insane. We had the same amount of clubs from London as from the whole of Spain, <laughs> which seems a bit uh, a bit of a strange waiting system. Dom, the way that this has unfolded and come to a swift end and the fan reaction, is this an example of greed and capitalism in its purest form or actually the free market doing its job? Well, that's a good question. And... Uh... I subscribe to the uh, Michael Douglas point of view that greed is good. There's the famous Adam Smith quote. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker or the brewer that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. It's not from Jeff Norcott's benevolence that we expect a wonderful podcast. Uh, Jeff is creating a wonderful podcast because he wants to get on in life and make people laugh and become a well-known international face of comedy. I mean, I, I take on. on board everything you said, but I think international, I'm not... I, I think if I could just sell out Monmouth Savoy, would be a start. <laughs> okay, yeah. national. You want to be huge in Monmouth. I want to and be, we all want to be huge in Monmouth. I want, I want to sell out small to medium-sized venues. I think I'm alone in saying this, that firstly, like, the way people reacted, you'd think that FIFA and UEFA were the, these huge, great, morally upright, great guardians of everything that's right in the world. Yeah. Surely anything that undermines FIFA and UEFA is a good thing because FIFA and UEFA are two of the most bent organisations in the sordid history of monopolies ever to have existed. And I, maybe it's just me, but mm. I think at European Super League, would, was a really good idea and it would be really good. It's not like you're not going to have, um, you know, Chelsea playing Lincoln City. That game is still going to exist in the FA Cup. And it's not like you're not going to have the ordinary Premier League. That was still going to exist. But the idea of this Super League between, um, you know, Chelsea and Man City and everything else, I think it would have re- resulted potentially in more footballing but, excellence. But it, the, the football... Pyramid is a pyramid, so it's predicated on the idea that wherever you start from, ultimately you could play, you could play in the pinnacle of whatever uh, footballing tournament or competition is around mm. at that time. This didn't, on the face of it, accommodate that. They they started to make noises that ultimately it might, but it doesn't answer the question. So eventually, even if you have promotion and relegation, it doesn't answer the question of why the fuck certain teams were there in the first place, right? Well, those, those founding teams are going to be there. In perpetuity. Now, I don't want to single, single out Tottenham, but 
or yeah. Arsenal. Arsenal haven't been good since 2004. No, Arsenal haven't been good for a while. But I'm I mean, not, football, yeah. how long? Like, it used to be that yeah. the, the, the a football team would be the young bucks of whatever area you lived in, competing yeah. against other young bucks from around the country. Mm. And, you know, and these were the representatives from the local community. And great, but and and but football's lost touch with that 30, 40 years ago, long 50 years ago, ago yeah. long time ago. That's yeah. gone. And the idea that you know Mohamed Salah is the young buck of Liverpool, he's not, he's from Egypt, he's got nothing to do with Liverpool except he plays for them. He's a yeah. he's a mercenary, he's a hired hand, an absolutely brilliant footballer, but he's nevertheless a mercenary. And you know, you look at, I mean, fo- football, you look at the atmosphere some of the footage of 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 terraces in the 1970s and i know there was hooliganism and all the rest of it but it was amazing you look at like the cop yeah. singing she loves you yeah 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 and, and things like that it's just some of the most mm. there was an, and it is the fans that have made in my opinion the premier league so good and made it such a wonderful export and they get absolutely nothing for it they are just you know they're just ripped off for shirts they're ripped off for their support they're ripped off for their loyalty Mm. so the idea that football has long since lost touch with its roots it's lost touch with what it's supposed to be I mean it's really funny how tits up the Super League has gone and if ever you thought that lizards and and other people control the world well here's an example they really fucking don't everyone's as incompetent as everyone else well, I mean, that was it's one of the funniest things I think that, that has ever happened, just watching how quickly uh it got. Do you remember do you remember when they touted the idea of COVID marshals? And I thought uh, or or Prince Andrew's interview on Newsnight, and I sort of thought, I wonder if there's a concept of, or an idea that could ever be as shit as that. You know, certainly in the case of COVID marshals that, that could come around so quickly and then be dispatched so quickly, or, or just something that went so unequivocally badly as Prince Andrew's interview and then, then suddenly this idea comes around and there were certain people going this is just leverage for the deal i'm like is it i'm not i think you're crediting billionaires a bit too much there i think they have fucked up royally and they've just kind of figured i think this was their their thinking was that they're you know in terms of the hardcore fans that go every single week you sort of thought well you can only get so many of them in the ground but what we really need is the kind of intermediate fans domestically and internationally you know you need fucking steve from indonesia as long as Steve, I mean, I'm not, I'm not up on Indonesian names. But as you rightly say, people talk a lot in financial terms about football now. So, all right, let's call it a product. And the product involves exactly what you're talking about, which is that intensity, right? When a if goal you goes, know how important the fans are. Look at yeah. how shit football is now oh without God. crowds on the telly. Yeah. It tells you, it's fans make it. Well, I mean, there was a YouGov <laughs> poll, and obviously YouGov, they always seem to. They would seem to ask uh, uh, people that I generally don't meet, but now I have met someone in yourself. But they were roughly 15... They never asked me. Roughly, well, roughly 15% of people supported the idea, which I think maybe is a lot of Steve's... Have you ever been asked to contribute to any YouGov poll ever? Have no, you ever I, met anyone that's asked on a... No. And I'll tell you, another group of people you never meet in life, you know those in uh, airport departure lounges, you know those cars that they're doing a prize giveaway on? You've never met anyone that's won a fucking no. Ferrari in no. an, <laughs> in yeah, an airport. Doesn't mean they don't exist, but um, I think YouGov are, seem to be asking the same pe- people the same questions. I mean, what would happen as well if you... So, so suddenly was Do you think they've just got like a little WhatsApp group and they just have a little poll on their WhatsApp chat? They've got like a 15 or yeah. 20 people mates on the WhatsApp chat group. But what happens if there was relegation, right? 
Imagine the embarrassment of getting relegated. I mean, it's, it's bad getting relegated from the Premiership. Imagine having been in the European Super League. It's a bit like, you know, when your mate kind of upsizes just before a credit crunch. What most people think. Their, their idea was that they were going to play alongside the Premier League. What One thing I don't think that they bargained with, Dom, was the chips that the other organisations were holding. The Premier League, you know, we say, well, you can't play in the Premier League. And FIFA were going, well, players that play in this can't play in the World Cup. So I don't think that they, they'd reckoned with just how uh, militant the stances would be from those organisations. Mm. And also whether or not it was guff or bollocks, but Boris weighed in fairly quickly, uh, which was an easy win for the government. Is it just, I mean, have they miscalculated just simply in terms of their relative power versus the rest of football? You know, I I guess they were trying to make something similar to what goes on in in, in American sports. Those sort of super leagues you get in America. I guess they must have told... I can't believe they're that stupid to have thought, well, actually, you know, the players might not want this. The fans might not want this. The uh, Maybe there was just a sense of entitlement. And, and you know, the eight... We talked about groupthink before and how dangerous groupthink. Maybe, the you know, the CEOs of those eight or 12 clubs who were involved in it or the owners are mm. own, in their own little ownership bubble... And they had their little WhatsApp groups and they talked about it and they just thought everyone would roll over and go with it. And nobody factored in the possibility that that actually the rest of the world might not want it. <laughs> Can you imagine that WhatsApp group as it started to go wrong as well? Yeah. Manchester City of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as I think it's just that. <laughs> Chelsea have left the country. In the end, it just ended up the, the Glazers and Henry going, fuck it, I told you we shouldn't have called it super. It wasn't a strong enough word. We should have gone like fucking amazing league. That's what I said. Yeah. Would anybody listen to old John Henry? This podcast called What Most People Think. It's, sometimes it's hard to come to a, uh, a view of what the general sort of consensus is, but it's never been easier than this. What most people think is that this is a shit idea. It is important that there is some sense of meritocracy in football, and uh, these clowns can fuck off. So just coming off the back of that chat, it's interesting that comedians and comedy in general, obviously, as you'd imagine, was uh, completely against the European Super League. And I sort of thought, well, yeah, thank God that comedy never had its own breakaway moment, for example, within the context of the Edinburgh Fringe. Well, oh, lo and behold, it did. I can't remember when it happened. But the Edinburgh Fringe was just one festival for a long time. And then the big four venues uh, a few years ago made the Edinburgh Comedy Festival. So uh, the the Pleasance, the Underbelly, the Assembly Rooms and the Gilded Balloon. Gilded Balloon, yeah. Formed a break. It was a, it was a cartel. It was, you had to pay for an extra brochure. It was more expensive to join. Now... As a shameless careerist, I will say that I, I, I fucking, you know, I, I performed within these venues. But how how does that look now on, on reflection? What, what's the difference, Dom, in the principles of comedy breaking away in that way to the European Super League? Well, I think that was, ex- I think the principles of that were pretty much exactly the same. Um, those four venues pretty much dominated comedy at the fringe and they tried to break away and form their own thing that was better. Funnily enough, the Edinburgh Festival itself, I don't know if you know the early history of the Edinburgh Festival, but itself was a breakaway thing hmm. because in 1947, the festival was founded by a chap called Rudolf Bing, uh, uh, among others, and he was a, 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 an Austrian. Uh, he was um, head of the New York Ballet at one point, but he was an Austrian, and he founded Sadler's Wells Opera. But he was an Austrian Jew who'd escaped the Nazis in the 30s and come to the UK. 
And he wanted to start this festival to heal the wounds of war um, through the language of the arts or something like that was his words. Yeah. And he raised £60,000 to put on a festival and he got £40,000 in subsidy and he got, 40, um, sorry, he raised £30,000, £20,000 in subsidy and £10,000 from his mate who just won 10 grand on a horse, <laughs> Lord somebody <laughs> or other. And they put on this festival and you look at the first bill and it was, they wanted the very best that the arts had to offer. And they put on Sadler's Wells Ballet, uh, the, the uh, Sadler's Wells Opera, the, the, the Royal Ballet, the Halle Orchestra, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, the best conductors in the world. And it was really, really elitist, highbrow stuff. Yeah. And there was a couple of, uh, there was like a little puppeteer from uh, Worcestershire called uh, Waldo Lanchester. And there was a couple of Marxist theatre groups from Glasgow. Oh, and hello. Other ones, student That's ones where from, it began. That's where I'm it telling you. Began. And there was one called the Glasgow, the Glasgow Unity Theatre, which was there to bring drama of relevance to the working people. It's, am it's amazing that that name can both sound kind of cohesive, but also... With the, the vague undertone of violence as well. Yeah, but unity. We are a unity. Anyway, they all wanted to come and be part of this inaugural Edinburgh Festival. Uh, and Bing said, no, you're not good enough. We're putting on the highest mm. ideals of art in its purest forms. We've got, you know, the Halle Orchestra, the Vienna Philharmonic. You guys aren't good enough. And the Glasgow Unity Theatre in Lanchester and various others said, no, we're coming. And whether you allow us to come or not, and so they all found their own theatres and um, put on their own shows and organised their own tickets and everything else. And thus was the Edinburgh Fringe Festival born, ah. differentiated See, from the Edinburgh Festival. A lot of people think of them as the same thing, right? You know, it started as a result of a breakaway story. Yeah. Um, but but I think you've, you've got the point there, but there's a great little... And it was people acting out of their own interests with no regulator in charge, totally totally free market mm. created this enormous thing i think uh, in 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 a typical year in edinburgh edinburgh has a population of 450,000 people over 4 million people go to edinburgh for the course of the festival it sells more tickets than any other event in the world including the euro super league the only event in the world that sells more tickets is the olympic games and they yeah. happen every 4 years it's an incredible triumph of free markets and all the rest of it and the irony is most people operating within that industry are all you know very left-wing we must have more government this we must have more regulation of that they're totally anti anyone doing stuff that they think is best for them and they just don't realize that what they say and what they actually do are yeah. totally uh, oppositional I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about football as a business. Let's talk about comedy as a business. How does it work for you? You know, as somebody that, that analyzes businesses and is fascinated by economics, how does it perform? Well, I mean, there is no comedy business at the moment, unfortunately. But I really admired the way that comedy reacted to COVID. And it was like, right, we're going to have to make Zoom gigs work. We're going to have to find, do stuff online. And, you know, mm. loads of, I think when you are a comedian, when you decide to be a comedian, you are doing exactly what Margaret Thatcher, the great ideological enemy of every comedian on the circuit, yeah. wanted you to do, which is 
take responsibility for your own actions, take responsibility for your own career. They were the embodiment. You start your own little business. You, yeah. you, you have to do your own accounts. You have to write your own material. You have to write your own, you book your own gigs. As you get better and better, you might get an agent and you might get help. But comedy at the grassroots room above pubs level is pretty much as free organic and organic an experience as you can imagine. And imagine if some government directive came along and said like minimum wage, for example, you yeah. must pay comedians. Well, the comedy circuit would, would die in an instant because free gigs, you know, new material nights are an essential part of the comedy ecosystem where a, a big name comedian will go along and perform for nothing or a no name comedian will go along and perform for nothing. The big name because he wants to get try out material, the no name because he wants to get booked. And mm. it, it, the whole thing is completely market driven. The price is set by you know, how much people will pay for the booker can pay for a ticket. There's no need for diversity quotas because the guy who's booking, putting on a bill will go, I can't just have four white Tories on this bill tonight. I've got to have I mean, a you bit fucking of... do well to find. <laughs> well, exactly. Look, I mean, but, unless it's comedy unleashed, <laughs> but yeah, but, but even that's pretty diverse and the comedy will go, well, I, you know, I can't just have four blokes in a mic. I've got to have a special act or yeah. I've got to have, you know, they've got to be, there's all sorts of writing. It's not just diversity of color or diversity of gender. It's diversity of age, sex, type of act, subject matter. And it all happens quite organically. And, you know, the circuit in the UK, I, I think at the grassroots level was probably the best in the world. It was, And yeah. it's only when you get into telly where there's all sorts of stupid government intervention, especially on the BBC in the forms of diversity quotas, that it no, it's no longer a meritocracy and you get people promoted before they're ready. And you, you, and you get, and, and the result is TV comedy is, despite the millions, billions that get thrown at it in the desperate search for a hit, TV comedy is dominated by about three, three or four main agents and it is largely shit. And it's because, and I blame monopolism and government intervention. If it was a free-for-all like YouTube is or, or, or the circuit is, you know, there's no shortage of good comedy on YouTube. I mean, you do notice, like, a few of the stars that have broke through in recent years through social media, like uh, Paul Smith in Liverpool and Mo Gilligan, two really good examples. They're not, they're not fucking, like, reinventing the wheel. They're doing funny stuff that has mass appeal. So Paul Smith... A lot of his videos that went viral were because he was doing crowd work. The kind of crowd work that you and I would have seen that punters love up and down the country, but that the comedy sort of TV fraternity had decided was a bit passe, right? And then you get Mo Gilligan. A lot of, I think, Mo's phenomenally talented and charismatic. And one of the things that he does is, is, is he talks in, in sort of in, implicitly about the differences between men and women, right? People always love that. There's always a market for that because it's the most fundamental difference between human beings. And yet for TV commissioners, I remember on Match Report, some of the sketches that did well. So there was one about Northerners and Southerners, right? There was one about a couple that was just about when the bloke fancies the woman, but she doesn't fancy him. And they were like, we can't believe how well these are doing on social media. I was like, what, stuff about Northerners? What most people think. You mentioned about the lack of big hits. I mean... There has been, in the last few years, I mean, an example of a show that has done well for numbers is King Gary, but because TV comedy critics, because it's a very working class type uh, sitcom, it hasn't got as much coverage. And yet shows that are getting barely a million viewers get fated to the to the rafters because, because they're a style of, of comedy 
We're genuinely, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like an old fart, right? It's very easy for two blokes like me and you to sit here and go, well, comedy's not as funny as it was, Dom. But I watch these, I even enjoy these shows. I watch something like Fleabag. I think this is really, really good. Fleabag's good. Yeah, it's great. I haven't laughed yet. It happened because of Edinburgh. Yeah, but I haven't. And I agree, it's not that funny. It's good, have, but it's not that funny. It's really good. But I, is there a point then, right, that both in terms of a live comedy and in terms of sitcoms that we need new terms really because in edinburgh a lot of what is called comedy is actually i would call narrative comedy right it, it's it's where the story and the point of view takes precedence over the jokes it's not stand up in its purest form and a, a show like fleabag can you call that a sitcom what would you even call that i don't know i don't know i mean i guess i i bracket it as sitcom but more more sit than com the the if you just take the sort of little cartel in Edinburgh that you mentioned before, the Pleasance, Gilded Balloon, Assembly Rooms and Underbelly, what used to happen on the circuit back in the day was that it's quite hard to make your way up and get regular circuit work. This is back in the day of jonglers and all this. It's, yeah. You have to be pretty good uh, and and accessible to um, get regular paid work and earn a living on that circuit. And there are a lot of guys such as yourself, and I'm thinking like, you know, Mickey Flanagan and Andrew Maxwell and Hal Crutland and so on, who have adapted themselves and are themselves. And you know exactly what that comedian is and what he's about. And they still are able to go and talk to any room pretty much at any time. And they've got, you know, essentially a bulletproof, brilliant act. A lot of people to get no to make their way on the circuit have got a bit hacky, you know, uh, but you still, whether hack or whether you're your own kind of thing, you still have to be of a certain level. And I can think of 20, 30, 40 brilliant, brilliant acts on the circuit who nobody has heard of, mm. who other comedian, you know, Ben Norris, Roger Monkhouse, Mike Gunn, these kind of people, really strong acts who have never got a look in on the telly. Mm. And bizarrely, a lot of the acts who weren't good enough to crack the circuit, what they would do, or they were doing sketch acts or whatever. So they would, their whole focus of their, their year would be on doing Edinburgh instead. And then you get all TV and TV goes, oh, well, I'm not going to go and watch Mike Gunn's show at the Edinburgh Festival because I can go and see him at Jonglers. Oh, he's just some circuit act. And there's almost a contempt for people who are good, strong circuit acts without the recognition that actually to be a good, strong circuit act takes some doing. I'd rather go and see this quirky bloke at the Pleasance. And so there's almost a shortcut from the mm. Pleasance and those cartel places in Edinburgh to the agents, to the telly and the circuit and let's face it, something like Jonglers is a glass ceiling. The circuit is an end in itself. There's nowhere to go from Jonglers yeah. except the odd yeah. corporate gig becomes the end thing. So it's a really weird thing that's happened. But a lot of the best, the, the because of the peculiarities of the way comedy works, a lot of the best comedians have actually been overlooked by telly. <laughs> Okay, uh, we've got a few letters this week. A lot of positive feedback from the episode with Matt Marnie last week. I got this letter from a lady. She didn't say whether or not she wanted me to say her name, but she said about men's mental health is that men can be pretty good at taking them care of themselves physically. Uh, I think some men. <laughs> uh, but neglect the uh, psychological and emotional side of things. When things go wrong in relationship, this leaves a lot of men unequipped to deal with problems 
an inability to tolerate frustration, and sometimes even without the basic vocabulary to describe what they're feeling. Have you have you ever noticed that, Dom? When when you you see a mate in an argument with his missus, and you go, he just doesn't have the words and the language, and the <laughs> he's just not match fit enough to have this row. Have you ever seen that? Like at airports, one of my favourite things, and this is very sort of Schadenfreude of me, seeing blokes getting told off in airports. You, it's fucking, it's a spectator sport because I think. People are a bit more tense in airports. Often the wife, the mother has taken more responsibility for packing and getting things ready. So she's stressed. If you just sit there and have a coffee, just watch blokes getting getting the hairdryer treatment. It's beautiful. I think a lot of the time, though, in defence of blokes, it's a bit like the brilliant kickboxer who knows he can kickbox you to death, <laughs> but will just will just take a couple of punches because it's better for the long-term relationship. <laughs> and I think a lot of blokes just they don't particularly want to have the conversation that the woman wants to have or they don't yeah. want to fight back or they realize that if they do fight back in the middle of an airport, ultimately their relationship is going to be the loser. So to use um, the language of porn films, they swallow. They swallow. No, I think I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. But the thing is, is what happens is you allow your partner then to rack up victories over the years that probably she might not have warranted. But what happens is she then gets a sense yeah. of herself. Like she's the invincibles. She just thinks I'm fucking brilliant at arguing. And you go, no, they were just a lot of gimmies over the year. But then to tell a woman that, Oh, I let you have that one. There's another argument for you. There's another thing to negotiate. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's a bit like the Dane geld, isn't it? If you, if you, no matter how much you pay the Dane, you, if, if you keep on paying the Dane, whatever the Roger Kipling quote is, but you know, you know what? Do you know what I mean by the Dane Geld? I don't know that. No. Okay, so I saw your face drop when I said the word Dane Geld, and the look of confusion. Oh, this sounds intellectual. <laughs> in in the Dark Ages, when the Viking invaders kept raiding uh, um, the UK and England, um, King Alfred, I think, was the guy who began it. Um, in order, he basically paid them not to ravage the land. So every now and then, the army would turn up. Yeah. Uh, right. Going to go. We're going to ravage you. And and uh, um, uh, 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 Alfred and other kings would just pay them off with a bit of Danegeld. Danegeld means Dane yield. Mm -hmm. So it's a tax, basically. And off the Danes went and the land wasn't ravaged. And it was quite efficient for the Danes as well, because it meant they didn't have to sort of go into people's houses and, and strangle them and, and say, give us your gold or we're going to strangle you. You know, you're not always you're not always in a ravaging mood, are you? Or just go, do you know, a bit exactly. It was an efficient system all around. But it sounds like this is a, a Dane, uh, the, the, the Dane Geld of the personal relationship. <laughs> I do. That, that sounds like, you know, like, oh, you know, like uh, psychologists come up with great theories, like the Dane Geld theory. You heard about this great theory from Dominic Frisbee. Yeah, the Dane Geld theory. Now, Frisbee's Dane Geld theory of relationships. It does sound plausible, actually, the more <laughs> you say it. I asked a question last week about David Cameron about what he drinks, because I had this idea that most of what he promised Greensill was he was just pissed, saying that he knew people, going, oh, no, Rich, I'll give Rich a call. Don't worry about that. But it did beg, beg the question what David Cameron drinks. I went for the very fragrant gin and tonics. I just couldn't see him drinking a man's drink. But somebody did the research, somebody called RT, and apparently he professes to like single malt whiskies. Um, but he's also said a whiskey that was £41 a bottle. I think that that is the whiskey that your advisor advises you to say that you like. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> when, you're rich, I... when you're a fucking millionaire. 
I I don't think he's a big drinker, but I bet he's partial to red wine and and uh, bitter. I can see him drinking bitter. Uh, red wine, but not yeah, like think... n- not like Nigel Farage levels. No, I think you like... might be right with the with the red wine. Something like a bit of a Beaujolais, something light. Yeah, I I'd, I'd always wondered. Like David Cameron went very quiet for a few years and I quite admired him for like keeping out of the public eye and I thought he was just sitting in his shed writing his book and it was just taking slightly longer than he was expecting I didn't realize he'd got in with a fucking huge and I I quite admired him (laughs) because George Osborne was just taking the shilling wherever it was offered to him and I thought oh Cameron's like a noble old Etonian aristocrat he he, he's he's stood down and now he's keeping his gob trap I didn't realize he was he was taking the green seal shilling well yeah you know when he said I love this country I bet he fucking does. <laughs> what is giving him? I fucking love this country. What most uh, one more letter here. Uh, this is from somebody called Web Squirrel. So, dear Jeffrey, after seeing you your stand up live in Birmingham, you picked up on me. You picked on me in the front row and asked me which animal I thought I could kill with my bare hands. I, that was a question I was asking for a while. Which is, what's the largest animal that you think you could kill? with your bare hands. This guy says he replied, badger. I never had the opportunity to explain my choice. Uh, My logic was a badger has a low center of gravity. And I concluded if I'd steal toe cap boots, I could probably kick it to death without even getting my hands dirty. So first up, I just, I just don't know. I just think an animals can procure a different level of rage. They're not running it through the filter of, oh, is this on CCTV? What level of damage am I going to do? Is this going to get found out about a work? I think even a small badger is going to cause you more problems than you think. But then he goes on to say, but I wouldn't hurt a honey badger because they're fucking mentalists and wasps are cunts too. Um, have you seen footage of honey badgers? No, it's but incredible. I would advise anybody listening now after this, get on YouTube, look at honey badgers, the, the hardest bastards in nature. Well, they are. And Bitcoin has been likened to the honey badger oh, repeatedly it? because of its unbelievable resilience to attack. Well, there is one clip of a honey badger. I can't remember. It gets fucked up by a crocodile. It's like dead for minutes at a time. And then a bit like Tyson Fury on the canvas after that incredible (laughs) punch, it just comes back to life. So uh, there is one takeaway from this week's show is, is just look at videos of honey badgers and then thank me. So reviews, if you leave a five star review on iTunes, uh, I will read them out. Found this. This is from Mara. Found this after I hearing. I think you should Jeff- read the one star reviews out as well. Absolutely fucking not. This is a, this is a monopoly on five star reviews. Uh, found this after hearing Jeff on Emily's dog walking thingy podcast. Uh, proper funny and defo part of my weekly listen. Cheers. This is from MD Wake. The title says it all. What most people think. Definitely what I think. Keep it up, mate. Thank you. Funniest podcast out there. That's from Plessy eighty six. Jeff Norcott's podcast is like listening to that guy in the pub standing at the bar who talks nonstop all night to anybody about what he's read in the newspapers that week. However, it's actually funny rather than quite annoying. Even the missus likes it. Uh, I think we've got one more here. Just listen to the Sean Walsh episode. Some good belly laughs in that one, especially the anecdotes. Anyway, how many ends does Sean need in his name? Very good question. I can't believe I never fucking answered that. And then Nick Cox, who... uh, who says that I sometimes forget that Birmingham has a G in it. No, I don't forget, mate. It's just that I don't have your weird black country accent where I pronounce what should be a silent G. I'm not a fucking Birmingham. I mean, is there any way you want to almost hear your UCAS points fall away is to talk with that accent. Um, having slated 
uh, a whole region there, Dom. First up, thanks so much for coming back on the show and co-hosting. Can I just, uh, can I just read you, you uh, the latest review that one of my songs on YouTube received yesterday? Nicely done. Uh, this was from Wobbly Purple uh, under my song 17 Million Fuck Offs. Um, Wobbly Purple wrote, I wish this cunt would fuck off. <laughs> I mean, look, I've got some of those as well, but I, I choose to, in a sort of Soviet-era style propaganda, I choose to ma- we choose to manage the feedback. <laughs> no. well, I can't believe he, he actually went onto my thing, watched yeah. the video, and then wrote, I wish this cunt would fuck off. Well, I did question time last week, and there was a few people that, that tweeted me to tell me I was irrelevant. <laughs> Fucking morons! Um, you so, think? Did you talk about politics when you were on it, or did you? Uh... Well, a bit, but it was, it was. I mean, it was like all the green seal thing. It was so easy to just. I mean, it was obvious. You know, it's so grubby what Cameron was involved in, and then, and you know, then it was Prince Philip, and you go, God. I mean, it's not not hard when you when your opinion probably lines up with what most people think. You go, Yeah, it was, it was. He was a good bloke. He did a lot of service. Maybe we should make a big deal out of it. But there, this is the funny thing about comedy, though, Dom. It's just opinions that you hold that are in no way radical. You get to sit there and people say that it's refreshing. Is it? Or is it just really well, common? But I, like, okay, so, because I, I, I mean, obviously do my satirical songs and I write um, political stuff, but I tend to... I don't think I want to go on question time and talk like when I stood as a Brexit MP and that career lasted about three days. Yeah. Like people were writing all over my Edinburgh. It was sort of European Super League vibe about your. Yeah. (laughs) They were just writing UKIP cunt. And and Danny Wall was going, that's, that's, uh, that's not even half right. (laughs) Because <laughs> it was the Brexit party, but the the um, do you find it works? I mean, do, uh, does it do you more good than bad when you go on a program like yeah, that? Yeah, it does do more good. I actually quite enjoy it because it's just a stress test. You know, it's a pressurized thing. Can you communicate clearly and reasonably? I think without a live audience, the only difference this time. I've often been lucky enough to get a few laughs while I've been up there, which I quite enjoy doing. Yeah sort of see all the comments going comedian he's this this cunt's not even funny and then you make a question time audience laugh and you go that was a tricky par five mate so fuck you um but this time around i i think yeah i just i just quite enjoy being reasonable in, in my own way that is how i troll those people because they're like oh all right wing or brexit people are stupid or racist or gammony and so to just calmly not, I mean, obviously, I am all those things in private, but I'm not not going to fucking let them know. Um, Dominic Frisbee, thanks for being on the show so much for the third time. It's great to have you back. W- what should I direct people to? Obviously, you've got two books out which people can find on Amazon. You've got your songs. Well, uh, I, I like my songs more than anything else I ever do. So I would recommend just go to Dominic Frisbee Comedy Videos and listen to some of my songs. But the general public doesn't seem to like my songs as much as I do. And I think the general public wants Dominic Frisbee, the economic uh, commentator, thought Bitcoin promoter person. So if you're interested in all of that, you can just go to um, YouTube, Money Mark. You can just follow me at Twitter. Oh, no, at Dominic Frisbee on Twitter or YouTube, Dominic Frisbee, Money and Markets. Well, ultimately, the markets decide. They do. Lockdown, lockdown, lockdown,
Colbert, the host of Breaking Down with Allie Colbert. I'm going to break down. Are you going to break down? Let's break things down. Let's break down ourselves, each other, barriers, stereotypes, glass ceilings, maybe also just glasses. Tune in every week as I'm joined by celebrities, experts, and other comedians. I ask all the questions you need the answers to. Follow Breaking Down with Allie Colbert on Spotify to get new episodes every Wednesday. Thank you.